This is a Culture Inject production. The Nevers Podcast presents In Conversation With I'm Chirag, and today I'll have the privilege to be speaking with Emmy and BAFTA award-winning costume designer Michelle Clapton. She's worked on some shows the listeners might have heard of, Netflix's The Crown, The Devil's Whore, this cute little HBO show called Game of Thrones. Uh, Michelle is now leading, she's lending her Herculean talents to overseeing all the costume designs on The Nevers. Michelle, welcome to The Nevers Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, it's a good sunny weekend here in in the UK. (laughs) Okay, so cool. So uh, I know that um, Jane Petrie was the costume designer for the episode one. So uh, did you happen to have a chance to collaborate at all with her? How did the handing off of that baton go down? And in general, like, how did you get involved with the Nevers? Well, it's funny because I'd been asked to do it um, by Bernie, uh, who was the producer, and she was also the producer on the Game of Thrones. So she initially asked me, but actually I wasn't free. Um, and then I just sort of had gone away and I was, I can't remember what I was actually, I think I was doing the new Kingsman film, which still hasn't been released. But, um, and so then I think it, I don't know really quite how it came around, um, but I just got a call saying, and Jane's a friend of mine, so it was lovely. So we do have a dialogue with, with each other. So. Yeah, I just stepped in and we talked about it. And then, yeah, I carried it on for two. So it was funny. It was a sort of meant to be in the end. It was a funny way around it. <laughs> you had that HBO connection, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I tend, you know, you, I guess people tend to gravitate towards people that whose work they know. You know, it, it becomes more of a shorthand. So, you know, that's, I guess, why Bernie asked me initially. Um, and also Gemma Jackson. I'd worked with her on Game of Thrones as well. I'd never worked with Chrissy, the makeup designer, but I was really keen to because she's amazing. So, um, yeah, so we just sort of, and it was actually, I'd just finished a show and in London it's so busy at the moment and we're all so desperate to keep crew that actually it worked out really well for me and a lot of um, Jane's crew stayed on, which was great. And so we just, and I met lots of great new people to work with. Yeah, I mean, there's so many talented people involved in these shows, I can imagine. And just, just in general, like, what was was it this were you attracted at all by the scripts was that something that also appealed to you funnily enough probably initially no I, I I guess I don't know I wasn't particularly drawn to it. I mean I liked the writing and I, I mean I found the scripts quite tough actually because they're so dense and you know to start with you think what's going on here where is it going and also I was really keen not to go too steampunk I think that's such a cliche so it was trying to make it look sort of period and live within the period and not really changing anything particularly but just putting it together in a slightly different way and yeah it it was it was quite complicated to get into and because I usually really want to know about the characters I want to know where they came from why I want to know their lives and of course particularly in Amalia we don't really know and so in a way, I had to, it, it was it wasn't like straightforward, and I guess in the end that did attract me more that I could play and I could sort of draw on elements of period which maybe you wouldn't do in a straight period piece. I don't know. It was fun. Yeah. 
So, so there was an element of mystery to it. You didn't have all the details, just like the audience didn't, because we knew nothing about these characters at all either. Yeah, I mean, we didn't, and actually, the scripts changed continually. So, just as you thought you'd sort of understood something, something else would happen. And there was one particular dress. I think at the end of six, that I had to design for. Um, oh gosh, well, who was it? I'm really bad at names now because I want another show at the moment. Um, and it, Myrtle, I had to design a dress for Myrtle. And the only brief I got, it, it may be in three or four series time, and we don't know how she got there, but it has to be something more sophisticated. It could be 20s, it could be 30s. I'm going, what do I do? Anyway, <laughs> we sort of, we, I just, just loads of stuff. And in the end, I, I decided to do patchwork as a jacket, just because I thought, well, it's like her language. She patchworks language together. So it was a sort of reflection on that. And then the print, I think, went from, from something quite organic to something quite almost electric. It had like a circuit board sense to it. And it was an ombre through the dress, but I still have no idea how we'll ever get to that or if we'll ever get to it. So it's quite, it's quite interesting. Neither, neither do I. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, so I wanted to ask you as a costume designer, I was wondering what your relationship to the, what's your relationship with the word costume because for me, uh, with my untrained layman ears, the, like costume is something that conceals the truth, uh, like a facade or like the glasses behind which Clark Kent hides his true nature. And I like even as I say that, I know that I'm not correct because even in the inauthenticity, there's got to be the truth of like, oh, uh, we as human beings don't always represent ourselves honestly. And so I guess my question is in the in the context of costume design for TV and film, do you like the word costume or what does that mean to you? Does that represent your title appropriately? It's a funny one because I, I suppose, you know, we use the word frequently and actually sometimes we don't think about it, the connotation of it. I mean, I, I think costume designers are sort of visual storytellers. I think we convey, we should convey when we're designing costumes or creating clothes for our characters, we should convey what we want people to understand, be it masking the truth or maybe it's expressing a truth that the words actually at that moment can't. Mm. And so I think we run alongside the narrative um, and sometimes we meet and sometimes we, we say the things that can't be said. Um, and I love putting messages and um, creating, I guess, creating costumes or clothes that I don't know, it's really hard. I mean, that sometimes tell you, tell an audience where we are. On a lot of these shows, we sort of flip from one place to another. And it's at quite speed now. I think it's quite hard sometimes for audiences to keep up. And so I try to use colour palettes on, on clothes that sort of tell you where they are or tell you the mood of the character. Um, and also within that, we obviously have, we work not only with the writers and the directors and the showrunners, we also have to work with a sort of link with the actors as well. So we, we have, I, I, I was actually speaking to a friend of mine, Rosa Dyers, actually, who lives near me and who's also a costume designer about, you know, the concept that people have of costume designers. They, I think they think we just sketch all day, but actually it's, it's so much more than that. It's a sort of negotiation. It's trying to get your ideas in sync with the directors, with the actors, trying to make us all feel like we're on the same page. I mean, it's, and then you have to negotiate with your crew to make them, to find the fabrics, to dye, to print. Um, and then you have to go to set and introduce to set and make sure the costumes look good within the set. I mean, so it's so multi, I don't know, there's, there's no day that is ever the same. 
And there's, I think I can't think of one day where I just sit in my office and sketch. I mean, I might grab, you know, an hour or two here and there, but then instantly get pulled into all the other things you're doing. So it's funny. It's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's an, I mean, I love it, of course, but it's very hard to sometimes explain what it is. Oh, no, no. That was an enlightening answer. I was going to ask you about that. So I know you started um, before you were doing costume design for TV and film. You began as a stylist in the fashion world. And uh, is that was that a world where you had more of a singular vision, like you had more control as opposed to in TV and film where you kind of have to divide that control and collaborate with so many people? Yeah, I guess it's just different. I mean, when I had my fashion company, obviously you design your idea. You don't actually have to take into account anyone else's, but you do have to think about the marketing, how it will sell, price point, et cetera, et cetera. And it becomes much more about a business, which is why I left it, because I didn't enjoy the business element of it. I don't want to sell them. I just want to create them. So it wasn't really a suitable place for me. I did two, I think, seasons, and then I got out of fashion, and I eventually went into styling. And so I used to style a lot of um, videos for bands. I used to style tours. Uh, and that was that was a great learning curve for me, because at that level, I pretty much, my, myself and my assistant used to make everything we we needed to create we needed to create and we often had a really short time to do it so you know i always had a studio and we'd be sometimes gluing things and sometimes spraying stuff and machining stuff. i mean we just did so much stuff and it it taught me how to turn something around really quickly and to come up with solutions um sometimes you don't have three days to solve a problem you have half an hour before it goes on to set and i really enjoy that element i really love stepping get okay this is what we do and just turning a costume around in seconds. And that, that, I think, is really exciting. I remember when I first started doing sort of TV and film, I had like 10 weeks prep. I think, what do I do for 10 weeks? I mean, it was just seems so odd having like had like five days usually. And I used to think it was such a long time to be on one thing. And now, of course, I do maybe a year on something and it never seems quite enough time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's much more collaborative, I have to say. Um, but it did teach, doing all those promos and whatever and commercials did teach me the idea of having to listen to the directors and the producers and everything. And it becomes a game sometimes, especially in commercials, where you sort of, you almost show them the wrong thing because you want them to like the right thing. It's sort of, it happens quite a lot. So I was wondering, it's like, again, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I I feel like the idea, my association with the fashion world is feels like glamour and then with the um tv and film you're based on what you've said in various interviews and what you just said previously it's kind of like you're you're expressing an an inner psychology or like an inner feeling that the character has who the character is so i was wondering what the difference is when you design a costume for a runway model versus a character in a tv show just on the scale of authenticity versus glamour and where those two overlap because i know even in like tv shows and film there's spectacle to be had Mm -mm. i think it's a misconception to think that fashion is glamorous Mm -hmm. it's glamorous maybe for one day which is the day you see it on the runway other than that i think fashion eats people up i mean i think it's one of the cruelest businesses in the world actually because you know the expectation on a designer and the pressure 
as we've seen on many of our best designers, is often just too much, you know, that it's just awful. Um, so yeah, I dispute the glamour of fashion. I think fashion has a lot to answer for. Um, I'm, I'm very glad I got out of it when I got out of it. And I think um, my life has been better as a result. I also think my life has been more creative as a result, because again, I think the confines of fashion, other than the really top people, it's all about money and it's all about commercialization. Mm -hmm. So, um, but also I think even as a fashion designer, you create a script, you create a story for each collection you, you make. And I guess the beauty, the one beauty of, I guess, in terms of beauty fashion is that you have these amazing looking models that frankly make almost anything look great. And you put it on them and you tell them how to wear it and what to do. And when I first did the crossover to film and TV, I remember one of the first actresses I dressed, she literally came in. I said, okay, can you put this on? It will be like this. And you need to walk like this. And she just looked at me in horror because it's like, you don't tell me what I wear or how to wear it. And so I think it was quite a quick, quite a steep learning curve to say, actually, it's a discussion and it should be. But I think that is one key difference between, you know, a fashion designer and a costume designer, because, yeah, we go back to it. It's a collaborative piece. And I think, I think a costume designer also, you have to be able to, one of the biggest and as the most important things to do is to be able to keep seeing the whole. So you may be working with this one actor here, in your head, you know what the director and you have spoken about. You know the sort of architectural, the space that Jen or whoever has recreated. So you have all this information, and you have to then think of the whole. Whilst you're having to, while you're having a conversation, a quite intimate sometimes conversation with an actor about how they see or perceive their character, and it can sometimes be quite sort of a, a number of discussions to try and. And I learn a lot from them as well, and I like taking elements that they have thought about their character, because I'm thinking of like maybe 50 or 60 characters. They're thinking about their one character and analyzing what they know about it. Um, so that's really interesting. There's a current trend, which I find really frustrating is that, that we get directives from productions saying, please don't discuss the script with the actors. They haven't seen it yet. You, well, how can I do my job then without discussing the script? because that's what we're both, that's what we're all working to. And it's often because I think now, scripts are often very late or are being reworked right, right until we film. And then sometimes whilst we're filming, we may start on episode one, but we haven't even seen episode three, which is really, really difficult. And the other thing that now series are doing is also shooting out of sequence more so than ever. So you may start with an episode from, you may start with a scene from episode eight, followed by a scene from episode one. And for the actor, that's so hard because how do they know where their character will be mentally and how they'll feel about it before they've even started shooting? You're already jumping into episode eight. So there's a lot of things happening, I think, in filming at the moment, which are really hard. Yeah, they, ha they haven't gone through that journey sequentially, I guess, yeah. So I wanted to I wanted to bring up something you said in a BAFTA interview that really resonated with me. Um, you said that costume has to, uh, and I'm quoting you, express 
what that character is going through at any given time and that sometimes that character can't verbally express it but they can visually express it and like first of all hearing that i had this moment of idiotic revelation about myself that like even the costumes that i wear i happen to wear for my own wardrobe on a daily basis are either unconsciously or consciously expressing who I think I am or who I want to be or some other aspect of my psychological condition. Um, so like just in the spirit of that idea of visual expression, I wanted to throw a couple of observations at you to kind of get your reaction. So the first one I'll throw at you is the character of Molly in episode six of The Nevers. Molly's costume in episode six. So we see in that sequence, we first see that Molly, she's in the bakery and she's wearing those, those light colors and there's happy music. And then as the sequence progresses and she loses her job and she gets trapped in a childless, unsuccessful marriage. And, and then as we see her descending again and again into the dark, narrow alleyway where you know she's delivering those bread rolls she, it's also we also see her dress kind of descending into these darker muted browns and grays and blacks i was just wondering is that was that a conscious decision on your part by chance yeah it was actually that, that I, I mean i love episode six was really my favorite i love this sort of recognizing of all the sort of things that you weren't sure of but yeah i I wanted initially that to be that sort of rather soft, you know, soft tones, honey tones. You know, this is a sweet woman. I also, because I think later Amalia references like, what am I doing, this stupid little body? So I wanted this softness and this comfort. And then, of course, then there's the marriage, which you hardly get to see the wedding dress, but we made, made it in this lovely sort of um, soft flag fabric. And we imagined that Molly had been making these things for her wedding day all her life. And the little, all the little details, lace gloves, the bag. It was just this sort of moment of happiness and beauty. And it was wasted on this awful butcher, you know. And then, yeah, it was just this sort of slowly descending into these dark greys and blacks. So I always think if you'd watched that without any sound or any knowing, you would have just said, you would have seen the decline of this poor, sweet girl because of circumstance at the time. You know, women didn't have the choice really to say no or to, you know, lead their own lives. And so, yeah, it was very much that. And it goes with the set, you know, the set, rather this lovely warm bakery, the set starts becoming rather, I mean, I thought the, the, the house, the butcher's house where his mother was, was just such a great set. It was so cluttered and claustrophobic. And so, yeah, you slowly, and then in the dark, dank alleyways, so, you know, there's no point in putting her a flowery dress walking along a dark alleyway, it, it would jar. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, of course, that's, yeah, that's very much the way it was meant to go. Yeah, I, I mean, I love the, the way you put that. It was kind of like the slow wilting of this beautiful flower. And the wedding dress was, like you said, if you put her in a flowery dress in those alleyways, the wedding dress really jarred with the with the house and that situation and that circumstance. It was this thought, lovely hope, fresh spring-colored hope in this sort of, just as I say, claustrophobic, weighty, heavy atmosphered house. And it was like it was like going like that to her, crushing her, crushing everything she had really wanted. Mm-hmm. Were you responsible for facilitating the the kind of the futuristic dress and 
that like figuring out what the climate conditions are and what environmentally, politically, socially, what the human condition would be like in that kind of atmosphere. And what was that process like? Um, I have to say when I first saw the episode, it was so exciting. I really wanted, you know, I was really keen to do that. And we talked a lot about, you know, what they would have been through, how the costumes would, I guess, be battle-worn and scarred and what their journey was like. Um, we actually created a mask that we felt was really interesting because it, it, it sort of reacted to their breasts, so the light pulsed. So that, and we made it quite subtle so that it, obviously you didn't see them, but it was just that idea of something really hard about everything that you saw this pulsing breath and, and everything was quite broken and taped together. So we, I think we made about, I think we made some like 35, 30, 40 of those costumes because we didn't know how many would be damaged in the sequence because we when we made them, quite sure how long the sequence would be. Um, and then we tried to do each. Because I think like all soldiers, once they've been in a battle or in, in uniform for a while, they start, I suppose, personalizing it in some way. So we have this lovely sort of knitted piece that we put on one of the guys um, and we created all the prints ourselves because it was sort of latex puff printed on dyed fabric. So it was all really organic. And I, I wanted that feel to it. I didn't want a sort of space feel. I wanted something which was really you could really think these people had been in this for a long time and suffered a long time and, and hadn't seen fruit and hadn't seen real life. And then we made the other guys um, more, I guess, militaristic, like the red coat that I can't remember his name now wore. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a really interesting twist for us. You know, how often do you do a periodish piece and then you create something futuristic? And um, I really, really enjoyed doing that. And it's something I want to do again, and hopefully well shortly. Yeah, I mean, speaking of jarring and contrast, that was such an interesting... And what you just said about the red coats of the free lifers and that red just being that angry, I guess, stereotypically evil, archetypical evil color. And then what you were saying about the breathing, which is typically an autonomous process, but that we take for granted that we just breathe and then just seeing that process visually and how you can't really take it for granted anymore when you see it. And I, I thought that was beautifully done. I wanted to, since we're on the subject, and this is a bit of a fan theory kind of maybe too meticulous. You don't really have to give a reaction to it if you don't want to. It's totally cool. But um, the captured free lifer in episode six so I noticed that he had a gray scarf wrapped around his arm. And I also noticed that the purists in episodes two and four, we see them have a purple scarf wrapped around their arms. So I was just wondering, you don't have to, I could, I just throw that out there, but maybe there's an evolution from, you know, Victorian times to the future and who these people become and evolve into. Um, <laughs> I actually have to say, not knowingly, it was like a bandage because he's obviously got his arm. Um, he's got damaged by a, um, a bullet or something. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's funny when you look at that because I remember on Game of Thrones, I always put a lot of messages in. But then I was always amazed how people saw even more than I realized I'd put. And I go, well, okay, I'll take that too if that means something. <laughs> yeah, funny. Okay, fair. Connecting dots that don't connect. That's part of the fan's job, I That's guess. That's good, I think. And, and who knows? Maybe it will connect to the future. <laughs> 
Are there are there any other specific characters for whom the costumes kind of evolved over the season, over their character arcs that you could possibly shed some light on? I mean, I guess Malady was always quite a, a tricky character to find. I mean, Jane obviously started um, started with her, and then we sort of took it on. Jane created this amazing sort of um, straight jacket, but it was, of course, with all this writing on, which actually is referenced to a lot of women who weren't asylums used to do. Um, and so we took that on and took it into her costume as it moves through, but instead of we wore it as a sort of belt around the waist. But on a character like that, it's quite, I mean, we work really closely with Amy because she's very passionate about her costume and really wants to be involved. And it's always such a, all her fittings are really intense and really exciting because we sort of plot our way through. Because obviously she plays it in a very big way and makeup is pretty crazy. And it's like how crazy, we don't want to just be crazy, you know. It's like trying to pull back a bit and, trying to sort of work with her physicality. Um, so that, yeah, I think that was interesting how it evolved. And every, I think when we started with her red coat that she sort of cut off, we started with it full length. And actually we just ended up cutting it and cutting it and cutting it. And we came up with this idea that she wears her costumes inside out. It's like a, it's like rebelling. So everything she wears, she just turns inside out. And it's almost like she's exposing her vulnerability. She's exposing the workings of things. Um, and I think that I found that quite a sort of interesting way to say something about her without being too wild, you know. So, um, and she really loved that. And we, which, this, yeah, I, she enjoyed it. And so, with someone like Amy, it's such a collaboration. I mean, and the same with Olivia as well, um, who plays uh, Olivia, who plays Lavinia. Lavinia, right? Again, that was a particularly difficult sometimes because we only ever see her in a wheelchair. And if you see most costumes, are fine where they're stood, but then when they sit, they crumple. So we had to sort of end up sort of hooking her costumes into position so that they looked good in a wheelchair. And it was, I mean, it was such a delight. I loved doing her costumes. They were so, they were so sort of particular, you know, the way the hat sat, the way, it, the embroidery. And of course, Michelle Carrigan did the embroidery again, which is always a treat. And there just, there was something so precise about her. I, I loved it, masking this, this, I guess, this damage that we don't still know what it is or how it was created. And we don't even know what it is. We never see her feet. We never see anything. She's actually have the whole of her body is in a sort of bag at the bottom, which we always draped under her feet. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes and how, you know, how how that's what happened to her is revealed. Um, and the same with people like Augie, you know, the colours and how we dress them are supposed to reflect the birds, you know. The, so you have these sort of slightly iridescent blues. And Hugo obviously was quite fun to dress at times because he's quite flamboyant. And in the game, we sort of try, try not to be too bright. You know, you can, you can be flamboyant without being too gauche and flash. So we, I was trying to bring things back down. And then actually with um, Dr. Haig, I re Dennis, he, he, the first time I met him, we were talking and he said, you know what I really would like my character to have? A really high-heeled pair of boots. And it's fantastic. So his heels are probably about you know, three inches, say. And it was so great because it makes him walk in this really strange way. And I mean, 
And it was that alone that sort of created his character and his sort of the way he moves. And um, so, yeah, you know, those things come from actors sometimes. It's really exciting. Yeah, that's a really interesting way. When you unique product of collaboration with all these interesting, all these actors who are, you know, unique thinkers on their own and, you know, artists and, and what you said about Malady's insides uh, on the outside, just the insides are such like, those are the vulnerable parts of us and putting that on the outside. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And, um, and there is a vulnerability to Malady. I mean, for all her craziness and all that, she actually was just hideously let down. I mean, yes, she was obviously not particularly well, but suddenly this woman who she loved basically ditched her, you know, dumped her in it with Haig. And so you can you can see how that might tear her apart. And, and you know, I, I, there's a... Initially, I don't think you, you see the damage. You just see her as a damaged woman. But actually, once you get to know more of her story, you start empathising with her more. Yeah, absolutely. And I, what I love so much about her is that you see just how sweet and empathetic and compassionate she is as Sarah before she turns into malady and it's actually the doctor who causes the disease like he's uh, the dr haig is the one who turns her into malady and the way that i interpreted that as an audience member is to see malady as representative of of a larger societal disease which is what the word malady means i guess for like a crime and poverty and all these things that these kind of huge institutions uh, almost sabotage and manufacture in, in society for whatever profit. Um, but any, anyways, I, I, I know based on the projects that you've been involved with, you've been involved with a variety of projects across the spectrum. I'm curious about what I think constitutes a bit of a pattern with Game of Thrones and The Crown and now The Nevers. All massive kind of period piece shows, fantastical fundamentally English. Um, they're all like a step or two removed from modern reality. So, and like the same with Mamma Mia too. Like it's, it's a very grand, romantic, fantastic musical that it doesn't operate with the same laws of physics that just like a, like a normal uh, rom-com would. So I was wondering, is it easier or more fun for you to work with really stylistically distinctive and expressive time periods like Victorian and medieval England. Is that, is that something you like working in genre? Um, I, I tend to think it suits me better. I also really like doing futuristic. I like it where I can create, um, I guess, well, I guess out of all of those, I think the crown is different because it was creating something that everyone knew about. And the art of that was, to do what people knew about, like the wedding or whatever, the big, as well as we possibly could. So there was no criticism. It then gave me room to design within the areas that people don't know so much about. So the private lives are there. So I found that really exciting. And I tried to create costumes that were in the vein of what they wore, but without being actually what they wore. So for instance, with Princess Margaret, we never see them in trousers other than riding, but I love this idea that she wore slacks and a sort of brutalist shirt. And it just it just emphasized her, I guess, her desperation to get away in many ways, although at the same time, her desperation to stay within because of the support. So that was, I mean, that was all really great fun. But usually, yeah, I like taking 
jobs where I can really play and create. And, and I'm not making a documentary, it's a drama. So within that, I can actually, there's room to move away or play within that period. Um, but that's why I'm realizing I'm really enjoying doing futuristic because there are no rules. And so then I can get almost, I mean, you create your rules, you have to, you have to have a set, but it's for you to create or you as in the team to create. And then no one can say, like, they would never have done that. It's like, well, you don't know. And the same, actually, with the Netherlands. I think there's almost nothing there that people couldn't have worn. You know, we only have reference from photos and paintings. But usually in photos and paintings, those are the wealthy, and, or, and they're in their best clothing. Who's to say what lots of people who were never recorded are wearing? So, uh, yeah, I find contemporary hard or harder. Um, I'm doing a show at the moment which has an element of contemporary, but then an element of uh, element of future, which I'm really enjoying. Um, but the I, the thing with contemporary is people have very strong opinions what they think they look best in, and it sometimes gets confused with yes, but that's not your character. You as a person might look best in that, but the character needs to move away from that. So it brings in another discussion, and I think people who design contemporary films and TV are really underestimated because it's, I think it's more difficult in many ways. I mean, you don't have the workrooms, you don't actually have that side of it, but you do have people and what they think they should wear much more in the frame. In period, you go, no, oh no, but you have to wear this because it's a period, you can sort of guide it away. Um, so yeah, I, I try not to do contemporary very often. <laughs> Although I love watching contemporary pieces, ironically, then I probably watch contemporary more than period. But for my own work, I prefer doing period or future or fantasy. Okay, yeah, yeah, I, I get that because with contemporary, there's a lot. There's a thing where, even like a, as audience members, we all choose our own wardrobes in the morning, and we all feel like, you know, we uh, there's we can all put our own socks on, and but I, I feel like with contemporary there would be more of maybe like a subtlety to it or something because you're still trying to express the same things, right? Exactly. With the characters. I mean, I, I mean let's say I'm, I'm fascinated in watching it and when it's done well, it's just so amazing and clever. And I guess it's, if it's a sort of stylized contemporary, I think that's slightly easier, but just real life, I think is can be quite tough. But anyway, I, yeah, I leave that for others. <laughs> So I was curious, isn't it, is it an advantage for you to work on a TV show for so many seasons where you're kind of like working with the same writers and directors and developing something of a shorthand and, you know, you have a trust that develops between you as opposed to like the gypsy approach of different movie, different characters, different creatives every time? It's very, yeah. I mean, obviously I was like 10, 10 years or something on um, Game of Thrones and I've sort of said to myself, I will never do another one that long. Hey, I'm getting older now. I want to do lots of different things. So, you know, I did the first episode of The Crown, but I didn't want to go back. Not because I don't think it's a great show. It's just, I love setting up and loved it. And then I just didn't want to carry on. And it was really sad because I think um, some of the people misunderstood why I want to leave. It's not because I didn't like it. It's just because I wanted to do something else. And, um, so yeah, I think I think after the current two, I'm obviously seeing just 
overseeing the second part of the nethers and working on the peripherals. And after that, I, I think I probably won't do any more series just because they're so it's so much work to set one up. Once you get going, the second, third, fourth season are actually easier because, as you say, you know everyone, you know the characters, you have a sort of shorthand. But then it becomes, then then you just do that. And I, even when I was doing Game of Thrones, I always try to do a film in the downtime just so that I, I just don't get locked into one thing. So I think after this, I am going to do a futuristic film. So that will be really exciting. I can't wait to see it. That'll be exciting for sure. Yeah, I'm really excited by it. But I've got to, I've got to finish these two first. Then I'll get there. It's really hard not to judge. Like when you know you get a project, you're really excited. And I am really excited about the two I'm doing at the moment. But then I want to get to the next one. And I go, oh, God, I do need a break at some stage. I do actually need to see my partner and my dog sometimes. Otherwise, they might not be there. That's a, that's exa- So like being such an integral piece of these enormous productions... I can imagine takes extraordinary time, commitment, energy, dedication. So like, I was just wondering, like, what for you is the beating heart of what makes this job worth? What's, what's the gooey caramel core of this thing that keeps you engaged at such a high level and keeps you coming back? I think it's, it's just this idea of creative collaboration. I really enjoy it. And I really, really love working with my crew who are, just like so talented and you know I might come up with an idea and say I think that would be something like this and then I'll talk to them and then they'll just start sampling ideas and they'll run with it and so I'll say I don't know maybe we could think about how to do a pocket that's a memory of a pocket what would that and then they'll talk go, oh my god this is a really interesting direction so it's I sometimes I do a drawing I'm design a drawing go let's do that but often it's like well look this is where I'd like to go with it but what about, hey, you, Verity, do you want to just weave some fabric that maybe does this? And then she'll do like 20 samples and go, that's amazing. And so it's just that sort of creative collaboration. I mean, there are days when you just go, oh, all I want to do is go home. I'm so over this, like you know, another director or another thing or an actor comes in late and you think, how am I going? There, there's all that and driving around the M25 thinking I need to be on a Zoom, but I can't because I'm driving. I can't do both. And it's that sort of, that's incredibly stressful. But there is something about, watching the rushes and seeing this sort of your idea I guess of how something should look open and evolve and um and that I guess is really fascinating and it just it just keeps drawing you in and it's so hard sometimes when people are really critical of a show that you've all worked really hard on for whatever reason because it's so easy to go well that doesn't look very good and we didn't like that it's like but think of all think of all the people who have just put so much into it to dismiss it as some people do for whatever reason but I don't think particularly uh, valid I mean not sometimes they are valid of course something cannot be good but on some occasions they just completely diss something and then you just wiped off lots of people ever appreciating what all these people did from your own personal opinion and it just seems like you know I think critics particularly you know, sit in these lofty positions and basically sometimes, and not to touch on my work actually, but destroy something beautiful and creative just because they didn't like it. Yeah. And I think that's really sad. Or if they didn't like the person that directed it, or if they didn't like, and I just think that's so short-sighted. Of course, have an opinion, but don't destroy something 
on your own opinion. You know, maybe it's not even aimed at you. Maybe you're not, you know, I don't like everything on TV. It doesn't mean I hate it and say it's, say it's dreadful. It's just I don't particularly like it. And so, yeah, sorry, I'm not betting on my high horse a bit there. But, I, yeah, I think we suffered from that a bit recently and it seemed unfair. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. I mean, there's there's a responsibility that you have if you have that kind of a influence or that tall of a ivory tower to sit on top of that you have to, you know, use that carefully because you're affecting a lot of people, a lot of livelihoods, a lot of uh, the audience. And uh, there's, there's, I mean, the dominoes can fall in whatever way they fall. The fact of the matter is, the first half of the season that's come out has been absolutely beautiful as far as I'm concerned and just on its own stands as a, a wonderful self-sustaining piece of art that I really enjoy and I've watched like three times by now. Wow. So, <laughs> so I, I really appreciate it. I think we have a couple of viewer questions or sorry, listener questions. This is a podcast. One of our listeners, Tina, noticed that Amalia is wearing a choker for the last few episodes, and she inquired as to why that is. So is there any significance to the choker? Well, this was a funny one, really, because when I joined the series, um, Joss had said he hated high collars. And I said, well, in Victorian times, they were always high. You know, that's how it was. You didn't have low collars. Anyway, so that, in a funny way, became my way of, getting her around that. A, I thought there was something rather rakish about having this wraparound sort of, it's almost like a tight collar, but except it buckled through. And then um, and then Laura and I just really ended up loving it. But it, it, there was something slightly masculine about it. Um, and it actually, it just solved my problem as much as anything that, you know, I felt like, I also, the, the way Laura is, I think she, she looks much better when there's something around her neck it just seems to work with her features and everything and it just and I think her character is so feisty and so sort of I don't know you know well we know where she's come from now we know why she's like it but I just thought it made her look much more individual it made her look much stronger um and I didn't like it when she didn't have anything in the neck because I thought it made her look very vulnerable and I didn't think I didn't want her to appear vulnerable at that time and then Laura actually is amazing she can wear her corset I don't know how she wears such small corsets but she does and she's very comfortable in them so we just want to create this this shape that again from what she said like why have you put me in this body and so she's almost angry she's trying to which is very Victorian trying to constrict and make it into something that she obviously remembers her body being before mm. so sorry long answer Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't think of that. And it, it is, it, I, I maybe this isn't like relevant to the discussion of costume, but the the fact in the last episode and the sixth episode, she kind of atones with that body, and I guess the Galanthi shows her visions of Molly's life and that apotheosis where Molly and Zephyr kind of come together. I thought was beautifully done. Mm-hmm. Um, we have another question from at mofavo33 on Twitter. They ask, what are the changes to your design plans when you know the character will be losing her dress by the end of the episode? So there's a lot of shedding of dresses. <laughs> I know. I thought it was quite funny when Anna loses it. Is there something you don't like about clothes or something, which is quite amusing? Um, yes. I mean, obviously, the, if we're going to see the clothes, we have to think how that's going to be. And, I, and actually, with... Amalia in particular, who seems to lose her clothes quite often. 
I didn't just want it to be like white underwear. So we created uh, corsets and we trimmed them in black and we actually had, I think we had um, wheat sheaves all going. I, can't, I actually truly can't remember. There was a reason why there was wheat. And I think it was some sim, something symbolic. And I absolutely can't remember what it was now, but I know there was a whole thought process, what should be on her corset. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously when she, when she is in the water, we have to think about how she can kick off a skirt relatively quickly so we obviously designed the skirt which I think it had buttons and poppers down the side so she could she could really get out of it quite quickly because it's quite dangerous as well being in those tanks um yeah so we do think quite coherently about how how people will remove clothes what happens what we see when they do yeah it, it, it's always a consideration I mean obviously we make most we make all our principal courses anyway so they'll always be made to sort of quite a high standard and and in case we see them, they are usually pretty, yeah, very finished and beautiful because they have a lot of work to do. Holding the women in those in that shape is quite it's quite hard. When men complain to me at the period, they hate the high collars. Like, well, look at what women have to wear. Of yeah. course, it. I'd wear a high collar any day. <laughs> yeah. Just out of curiosity, what's the ratio of uh, costumes manufactured versus just buying them off of a shelf or something? I would say for principles, it, it was sort of 95% manufactured. Um, and then for um, extras, I mean, we do make a lot of pieces, like we'll have make, maybe 40 suits made just so that we can use them amongst people. We rent, we do rent as well from, um, from costume houses. But the more, as the series goes on, I mean, by, by the end, I think Game of Thrones, we rented very, very little. You know, it's sort of the balance changes as you can go through. On this, I think, um, yeah, we, we've made an awful lot. I mean, I think for the party, we made, I think, 30 dresses. Um, we like making. and we, I mean, we have great workrooms on site. And then we also use manufacturers in Poland and in Italy. And, and um, I, I don't know how it's much harder now with Brexit to do this. Before, there was no duty or anything. Now it's much, much harder. So um, we're trying, I guess we try and make, in the UK more. We can't visit costume houses in, in Italy and Europe at the moment because of the pandemic, which, so they just send us photos, which is never the same. You know, we used to go to Florence at the beginning of every show and go to Prato and select just basic fabrics. And as a design team, we would just meet there and talk about where we're going. It was this great way of starting a job with all these fabulous fabrics. And, and now we can't do that. We have to just, they send us bits of fabric and we go that, 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 but who knows? what we don't see that might have been amazing. You can't ask what you haven't seen. And so, and sometimes I'm inspired by just coming across something. So I think that element at the moment in design is sort of missing, but we have a great dye department and aging department. So we create a lot of our own fabrics in-house. So it's quite useful. That's fascinating. Which character did you have most fun designing for in the Nevers? Lavinia. Lavinia. <laughs> She's very regal, almost like Ro like Roman romantic, very yeah. like very. I also liked um, designing for Rochelle, who plays Annie, because I would wear that costume. We both would said we would wear this. I love working with her; she's great. She's really good. But also, and then Penis and Marley—they're all amazing. And Hugo, and I love doing Frank as well because I think Ben is just the most fabulous actor. I love working with him, and I, it'd be interesting to see how his story evolves. And his relationship with Hugo, I thought that was one of the most fascinating of all. And I just 
I could watch those two. I love the scene when he goes to the pub and then he said I was drunk and he says yes the first time. I just yeah. thought that was such a good scene. I loved it. Oh, it's such a good scene because it's like he's 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 uh, all the hatred he has for himself. He's kind yes. of directing outwardsly externally towards Hugo. And yeah. um you you never see that in television just the the fact that he's such a archetypically um like a character you'd find in a film noir like a hard-boiled detective kind of character and dealing with a, a subject like homosexuality and uh, it, it's such a unique thing that I don't see in television that I love um uh just a couple more questions I won't keep you all night all day all morning so I think we established that you will be returning for the second half of season one. Yeah. Awesome. Is there any advice that you could give fashion students who are thinking about making the transition into costume? Yeah. I mean, I would say there are lots of sort of trainee schemes where you can get into a, fa a costume department. And I think it's really interesting to get in there and have a look at all the different opportunities there are because there are so many creative careers within the department, you know, not only in the design team, but in the dye team, in the printing team, in, in a, the, the cutting team, whatever. It's, there's such an array. And I, at the moment, we're so desperate in our industry for talented people to come and, you know, work. Which some people, you know, we, I, I work all the time at the moment because I don't want to lose my crew because people are actually not able to do jobs because they can't find their crew. It's so busy. So yeah, sometimes I quite like a break, but I think, God, I just better take something else just to keep everyone together. Um, so yeah, it's really tough at the moment finding great people. So if, yeah, anyone talented, they should definitely try and join, please. If you're listening, now is the time. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, to cap off this wonderful conversation f with you, for which I'm very grateful to have had, I want to ask you, being an expert in the fields that you are, is being late fashionable? No, it's really irritating. Drives me insane. I'm always the person who comes, I'm always cloakroom one. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really boring. I wish I could be late. But I, I always think if people are late, they're stealing my time. If I knew they were going to be late, I would have done something else in that 10 minutes. I've just been sat here waiting for you. My partner, when I first met him, was always late, but he's not late anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Michelle. Uh, it's been a pleasure. You, uh, I'll, I'll let you go swimming now. Oh, yeah. I mean, follow me on Instagram. I try and post things interesting. Sometimes they're a bit more personal, but... I must post some more about the costume work. I'm going to, yeah, I think it's really interesting so people get to know, you know, what costume design is about really and how many people it takes to make a dress a lot. <laughs> I will definitely be following you. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thanks very much. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.